Father, may that be a reminder for all of us um, throughout this worship service that every part of our life, every breath, every step we take is, is found in you and in rest of you. And so, Father, we pray that that would come through in all of the songs that we sing, our dependence on you, and our prayers that we pray now show our dependence on you. And we look to your word as well, Father, because we depend on you. We need to hear you. We need your guidance and your wisdom in life. And so we pray that as you speak to us through your word, you would speak clearly and powerfully to each one of us, that anything that would distract us or hinder us from hearing you, any fears or frustrations or anxieties or busyness, Lord, that you'd push any of that away so we could focus and, and, and hear what you have to say to us this morning. Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. We're continuing to look at the book of Revelation. We're looking at chapters 10 and 11 this morning, and we've got um, the reading for both chapters up on the screen. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stood before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies." This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky during the time. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. 
Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack, attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints who have reverence for your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. There's a lot happening there. (laughs) And I can't address all of it in one sermon. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, But this week as I was studying that passage, I was remembering a conversation I had. I think I wrote down 20 years ago, and I was thinking it was probably 15 years ago, but either way. A long time ago, I had a conversation out sitting under the stars with probably the smartest man I've ever met. I was away at a a wilderness leadership retreat, and I had spent the week walking with this guy through the woods. And he had a Ph.D. in in, uh, natural biology. And so as we walked through the woods, I repeatedly heard how you can use this plant for this remedy and this plant for this remedy and you can crush up this and mix it with this. And, and he just knew everything about the woods. And then he would walk through and he would say, oh, look at this plant. This plant needs this plant to live, which needs this plant to live, which needs this plant to live. And here's how they all work together. And it was um, kind of a week-long thing. That wasn't even, had nothing to do with the retreat. That was just our walks like to and from things. Um, he was very smart. He knew what he was talking about. But that night, we sat out there. I think, if I remember right, there was a planet that was going to be passing by in the sky, and he wanted to see it. So he pulled out his, his telescope, and we were out kind of looking at this planet. And he got kind of serious and said, you know, it's frustrating that as I've been pursuing my Ph.D. and teaching in a university and wanting to receive tenure, I've had to hide the fact that I believe in a six-day creation. He said, if, if I would have mentioned that at any point, I would not have received my Ph.D. and I'd be revoked from having tenure. Um, he said, I'd be sidelined, I'd be silenced, I'd be kind of pushed off to the side. 
Um, I have to wait until I'm kind of locked in with my tenure before I can even talk about any of the science I believe points in that direction. And I thought, boy, that was, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And I think some of that, whether it's just, you know, creation, evolution, or anything, that there's this increasing kind of push to those who hold to a Christian worldview to be kind of pushed off to the side, silenced, and even fear losing their job. And, and I want to clarify, when I bring these things up, I'm not wanting to stir fear in your heart. Or I'm not wanting to set off a gripe fest where we just kind of sit around and moan about how bad the world is. I'm just wanting to say because it's true. <laughs> that as I talk to people and friends of mine, I, I have friends who are in jobs right now, who are worried they're going to lose their job because they hold to a Christian worldview on on creation or even on human sexuality issues. They're worried that they're going to lose their job for holding a Christian worldview. It's kind of increasing in in its pressure upon people. And uh, I know people are already losing their jobs over it, and I don't expect it to get better anytime soon. It's just the reality of our situation right now. And, uh, and to be honest, it's the reality ever since the fall. <laughs> in, Ge- in Genesis 3, ever since the fall, God's people have been in conflict with the world. And the world is, there's been this battle raging, which is the whole storyline of the book of Revelation. This battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And it's shown pretty explicitly in this chapter, when you look at what happens to these two witnesses. Now, for now, just don't worry about who they are and and what they're talking about. We'll get there. But just realize they're called witnesses and they're called prophets. So these are people who point people to Jesus and speak the word of God. And here's what happens to them. When they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over their dead bodies and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. It's pretty graphic. (laughs) But notice, I mean, the the beast wages war against them and they're dead. They're, They're refused a burial. It says, no, just let them die and rot on the street. And not only do they hate them in that way, they rejoice. They're they're exchanging gifts over the death of these two prophets. There's rejoicing in the streets. They're making merry. They're throwing a big party. It's like an anti-Christmas party where they exchange gifts in celebration of the death of these two prophets. That's how much they despised them. That's how much they hated them. And and all of this is set up by chapter 10. And at the end of chapter 10, I mean, we see John sees this this mighty angel come down and he's holding this small scroll, right? A little scroll, which means, you know, it's it's not as significant as the big scroll, right? There's a 
at the beginning we see a big scroll and it's sealed and Jesus is opening the big scroll. But now there's a little scroll and it's given to John. And a scroll always has what? We talked about this. It has words of judgment and salvation, right? That's what God, it's containing God's words of judgment and salvation. And so it's given to John and then the angel says, take it and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. I was thinking about that. We use some of this language of, you know, it sounds kind of weird at first for someone to tell someone to eat a book, but when you are reading a book that you really like, what do you say? Some people will say, boy, I'm just devouring this book. Right? I'm just eating it up. And so it means that, but it also has this meaning of when you eat something, it kind of comes into you, it's digested, and becomes part of your whole body, right? And so when the angel tells John to eat this book or eat this scroll, he's taking God's word, he's chewing on it, and it's becoming part of who he is. But the interesting thing is that it's bitter sweet. It's bitter because it contains words of judgment. It's sweet because it contains words of salvation. And so it has both of these things are mixed in, into it. And so, and, and we see that throughout history too as, as, as the word of God comes to people, some people receive that word of God as sweet, as honey, as sweet for salvation. Um, but other people receive God's word as bitter judgment and torment. And so the, the Word of God has this kind of sweet, a bittersweet thing going on with it. And what's interesting is after, that John, after John eats the scroll and it kind of becomes part of who he is, then the angel says, all right, now you must again prophesy about many peoples and language, nations and languages and kings. Right, now that he's eaten the book, now that's become part of who he is, Now he's told, now you go out with that message and preach it to the nations. Preach this bittersweet message that's in God's Word. Bring it to people and nations and kings. And I thought it was interesting, and Don maybe picked this up, end languages. I mean, it specifically says end languages. Get this out into different languages. But but here's why all of this is important, because I... it helps kind of set up the story. John is told to, to eat this bittersweet scroll, make it part of who he is, and then go preach that message to the nations. And then what do we see in the next chapter? We see two witnesses going out and preaching a message that is bittersweet to the nations. And so who are these two witnesses? And I'll just say like much of Revelation, there's a lot of disagreement on this. People won't always agree with me. But let me show you why I believe what I believe. On the one hand, it begins and it says these two witnesses, or they're also called prophets, these two prophets, they have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Do we have any kind of alarm bells ringing in the back of our mind about prophets from the Old Testament? Is there a prophet from the Old Testament who prayed that no rain would come upon a land and no rain came for three years and then 
He pray, yeah, Elijah, right? So we see Elijah here. They have the same power at least as Elijah. Um, but there's also another prophet who turned the water to blood and had plague after plague come upon a nation, right? And Moses. And so a number of people say, all right, these two prophets, these two witnesses, they are going to be Moses and Elijah coming back at the end of time um, speaking um, as these prophets. Um, but, but I want to say, it actually never says that it's those two prophets. It says that these two witnesses have the same power as these prophets. But there's also something else that I think is really important that we don't want to miss. When it talks about, here's the two prophets, it says, and here's how it describes them. They're the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And the olive trees points to some Old Testament passages that I'm not going to dive into because it would take a lot of time. But, but the lampstands, that should ring a bell right away with us, right? Because the first three chapters of Revelation, we talked about lampstands. And the lampstands were what? Churches in the presence of God. And now it says these two prophets are lampstands who are in the presence of God. And... Uh, and to kind of build on that, I, I found myself wrestling this week wondering, why two? Uh, because, you know, John already told us that all of, there's, there's going to be symbolism everywhere, right? But two is not really a biblical symbolic number. At least when I first thought of that, I thought it's not three, it's not four, it's not seven, it's not ten, it's not forty. Right? Those are all the kind of normal ones. And so I went to commentaries to try to figure out what was going on, and I was reminded of a few things, but for one, when Jesus sent out his apostles, he sent them out two by two. But more importantly, this is the one that really struck me, um, when we're talking about, so the lampstands represented the churches, and we had the seven churches at the beginning. How many of those churches did not receive a rebuke? There are two churches that said, he said, you're doing good. And one of those churches, he said, there's an open door before you that no one's going to shut for the gospel. You're going to go out with the gospel and nobody's going to hinder you. And the other church, he said, you're going to suffer. The synagogue of Satan is there. They're going to come after you and kill you, but I'm going to protect you. And so I think that these two witnesses are just another image of the church in the world. Another image of the church in a hostile world, bringing the bittersweet message of the gospel to the world. And we're considered prophets. Like the church, it's not just Elijah and Moses had the, we actually know, right? Elijah didn't have the power to shut up the sky, right? Who did? The God he prayed to did, right? Moses didn't actually have the power to turn the water into blood or to send the plagues upon Egypt. The God he prayed to did, and so this is telling us, as the church, we have the same power and authority as the prophets did of old. We have the Holy Spirit in the world. We, we have the power of prayer to shut up the skies. We have the power of them in the world. And we've been told to go out and make disciples of all the nations, preaching the gospel, which has this bittersweet message to it. And it's interesting because some people would say, but, but these prophets, I mean, these, if that's the church, it's talking about like fire coming out of their mouth and devouring people. That, 
doesn't sound like the church. And yet, in the Old Testament, God said this to Jeremiah, because you have spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth fire. And this people would, and the fire shall consume them. And so, the word of God throughout history has been known as a fire coming out of the mouth of God's people. And to some, it consumes them. And to others, it refines them. For some, it's a word of judgment and bitterness. And to some, it's words of salvation and refining and makes them holy. It's really a message of the power of God's word coming from the church. Not just the pastor, but the church. And, and when I say that, I want to just take a stop and remember what we talked about last week, because this is one of the things that really jumped out at me. Um, last week we talked about spiritual warfare, right? This, this demonic powers in the world and, and how Paul tells us that we're in a spiritual battle, right? Not against flesh and blood, but rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual powers in the world. And he's given us two weapons to fight in this battle, right? And there, la- last week we talked about prayer, but the other weapon we have is the Word of God. So last week... In chapters 8 and 9, we are shown the power of prayer in the midst of this spiritual battle. Now this week, we're shown the power of God's Word in the midst of a spiritual battle, in the midst of a hostile world. And the importance is we need to keep them connected, um, that we can't separate them. We can't just be a praying people and ignore God's Word. And we can't just be a people who are in God's Word and not prayer. They're They're deeply connected, but these are the weapons that we've been given in the world. As the church, we go out into the world and we preach God's word, which is this bittersweet message of the gospel that some will receive, some will reject. And then we pray that God works through that and brings his kingdom. And as we do that, we're actually fighting the battle in the world. We're actually pushing back the kingdom of Satan in the world. And yet, at times it doesn't feel like we're doing anything. (laughs) At times it feels like we're actually just losing the battle. And so we're given this another image at the beginning of chapter 10. He said, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. This is the same angel that's holding the scroll. Oh, it says that down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. This is a picture of Jesus. I know it says angel, but, but throughout the Old Testament, there was the, the angel of the Lord, who wrestled with Israel. And then after, after Jacob saw the angel of the Lord, who did he say he saw? The face of God. And so there's this angel of the Lord figure. And plus, when we read all this description of this angel, it's all the same imagery we've been given of Jesus. Legs of pillar of fire wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow around him. It's all images of Jesus. And notice where he's standing. I think this is, this is one of the p- images when I first studied this that jumped out at me. He's got his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, which is showing that he has authority. 
over the sea and over the earth. He's standing on them. They, they, he has authority over them. We've already been shown that he's got authority in heaven, and now we're being reminded that he also has authority over all the earth, over the sea and over the earth. And so in the next couple of chapters, we're going to read about the beast rising out of the sea. But here we're told that Jesus is standing on the sea. He's got authority even over the sea in which the beast comes out of. And I want to help you see kind of what's being, the image we're given in chapter 10, I think is just an image kind of story form of the Great Commission that Jesus gives us, gave his disciples. And and I'll explain that, but let's read the Great Commission. This is what Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. And now Revelation 10, we see a picture right at the beginning of Jesus standing on the earth and the sea who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's holding a scroll and he gives it to John. He tells John, eat the scroll. And John eats it and then he tells him to do what with it? Go preach that word to where? To the nation, to every tribe and tongue and nation and kings. And it's a bittersweet message. It's an image of the Great Commission. And then we see in chapter 11, we see another image of the church actually going out and doing that thing. Actually, I, could, I would say that if you read Revelation 11 and then you read the book of Acts, which is a, the story of the church going out into the world, you would see a lot of similarities between the two. And so we've got this picture of the church. We've got Jesus with all authority in heaven and on earth. We've got a gospel message that's bittersweet. We're going out into the nations. We've got power, right? We're devouring people with the word of God, the fire coming from our mouths, and yet you would think things would be just going great. (laughs) And yet, that's not how the story is told. Right? The beast comes out and attacks the witnesses. They end up looking like they're defeated. They're lying dead in the street. People are rejoicing over them. And you would think, well, did we lose? It's been kind of this repeated story throughout the history of God's people that there come moments in in history where it seems like the church has completely died. Um, Even Elijah, remember the story of Elijah? Even after he has this big moment on Mount Carmel and uh, the prophets of Baal, are he calls fire down from heaven and the prophets of Baal are judged. He ends up running off and... The angel comes to him and says, what are you doing? He said, I am the only one left who is faithful to God. And he actually thought that. He thought he was the only living person left on the face of the earth who was faithful to God. Because it looked like the church was dead, laying in the street, being mocked and rejoiced over. But we have a God who raises the dead. We have a God who has a different plan. And so, as we read Revelation 11, it says, After three and a half days, 
a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Just when the world thinks the church is dead, defeated, destroyed, God brings them back to life. And we've watched it happen over and over and over throughout history. We have a God who raises the dead, and that includes the church. But not only does he just raise the dead, but he also brings about victory. And so after these two witnesses are raised from the dead and and people are fearful and there's a judgment coming on them, says the seventh trumpet blows. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Ever. I mean, this is the victory cry of heaven. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom that just killed the two witnesses who, who have been fighting against the church, the kingdom of the world that, that has been waging war against God's people, rejoicing over their death, that kingdom will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and they will reign. He shall reign forever and ever. He'll bring victory. And why that's important for us, to re- all of this is important for us to remember because we can look around at our current situation and say, is the world increasingly becoming hostile to Christianity? And we say, yeah, it's increasingly becoming hostile toward us. Especially as the church Shrinking and struggling and seeming like it's dying right now. Yeah, especially in the western part of the world. Maybe not over in China and and, and parts of Africa and South America. It's not. But in our part of the corner of the world, yeah, it seems like the church is dying. But this, this gives us another picture. It says, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the hostility, in the midst of a church that's struggling... Our Savior has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we have a God who raises the dead. And we're not called to just kind of give up, throw in the towel, whine and complain about what's happening, but we're called to fight. And we're called to fight with the weapons that we've been given, which are the Word of God and prayer. Not political power, not our own strength, not our money. That's not how we fight. We fight with the Word of God and prayer. We keep going out into the world with the bittersweet message of the gospel, recognizing that it's a bittersweet message. It'll be bitter to some, it'll be sweet to others, but we keep proclaiming that message as if fire is coming from our mouth. And then we keep getting on our knees and praying that God would bring His kingdom and when we do that, even though the situation looks dire, it looks like, like the church is being defeated, it looks like the church is shrinking, it looks like the world is winning, we can be reminded that Jesus will win. The victory will come. God will raise 
the church from the dead, and he will proclaim that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God, and he will reign forever and ever. And the truth is, we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. Um, Today's the first Sunday in Lent, a season where we more intentionally focus on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we think about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we read these two chapters, we should see similarities all over the place. What was the message that Jesus brought to the people? It was a bittersweet message, right? He preached the gospel and some people received it as bitter bitter judgment and other people received it as sweet as honey. And how did the world treat him? They hated him. They mocked him. They beat him. They stabbed him. They hung him on a cross. And they rejoiced at his death. They even exchanged gifts with his own clothing at the foot of the cross, celebrating his death. And at that point, it seemed like he had been defeated. It seemed that he had failed. Even the disciples the next day were walking down the road going, we thought he was the one, but he wasn't. Seemed like they had lost, but three days later, everything changed. God raised him from the dead, and then people figured out and saw that it was through his suffering, it was through his death, that he brought about victory. There'd be no victory apart from Christ's suffering and apart from his death. And because Christ suffered, because he died, then, and because of his victory, then, then we into the world, preaching the word of God and praying, and we can go out with confidence because we know that no matter what happens, no matter how difficult things are, no matter how hard the situation is, God will bring victory. No matter how hostile the world comes against the church, he will bring victory. No matter how weak and small the church gets in the world, People will think the church has been defeated. God will bring about victory. And so we go out as God's people and keep fighting the good fight. We keep using the word of God, keep going out with prayer. And we keep praying that his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have confidence that Christ will reign forever and ever. Let's come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come and we give you thanks for the hope and the confidence that you give us. We thank you for your word and that you show us through your word that you bring about victory through suffering, that you bring about victory through seeming defeat. Father, we we wouldn't necessarily think that. We would easily fall into despair, and yet you have shown us That your ways are not our ways. And your wisdom is not our wisdom. And so we rest in you, Father. And we give you thanks for the word that you've given us and the hope and the confidence you've given us. Father, we pray that you would send us out into the world as the prophets. Preaching your word. Preaching your gospel. And praying. Trusting in you. 
Lord, we ask your forgiveness for all the times when we rely on other weapons that you haven't given us. We rely on our own strength. We rely on political power. We rely on all these other things. So we ask your forgiveness, and we ask that you would recenter us on the weapons that you have given us and help us to use them in the world. And may you be glorified, may you be honored, and may your kingdom come. And all God's people said, amen.